0: We all just talking real crap. Another episode of Sociologists Talking Real Shit. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Jose Zapata Calderon. Dr. Calderon is emeritus professor in sociology and Chicana, Chicano, Latino, Latina studies at Pitzer College and the president of the Latino and Latina Roundtable of the San Gabriel Valley and Pomona Valley. He received an AA from Northwestern Junior College, a BA from the University of Colorado, and a PhD in sociology from UCLA. As the son of immigrant farm workers from Mexico, he has a long history of connecting his organizing and academic work with community-based teaching, participatory action research, critical pedagogy, and engagement. He was a national founder of the Urban-Based Research Action Network and the American Sociological Association Latino-Latina Studies Section. From 2013 to 2015, he served a two-year term as a board member of the Los Angeles Board of Education. He was recently honored with the prestigious National Association for Chicano and Chicana Studies Scholar Lifetime Achievement Award, and has received numerous awards, including the Ambassador Nathaniel and Elizabeth Davis Civil Rights Legacy Award, the Dreamkeeper Award from the California Alliance of African-American Educators, the California Campus Compact Robert E. Cohn Award, for Excellence and Leadership in Cultivating Community Partnerships in Higher Education, the Goddess of Pomona Award from the City of Pomona, the Michi and Walter Wieglen Chair in Multicultural Studies at Cal Poly, at Cal Poly University, Pomona, and the United Farm Workers Union C. Award for Lifelong Contributions to Farm Workers Movement. A recent TEDx video, "Finding Cesar Chavez: A Transformative Movement," was chosen as an editor's pick nationally. As a community-based public intellectual, he has published over sixty articles, with the most recent one, "The Same Struggle: Immigrant Rights and Educational Justice," in the book *Lift, Lift Us Up, Don't Push Us Out: Voices from the Front Lines of the Educational Justice Movement*, and including books lessons from an activist intellectual, teaching research and organizing for social change, and race and poverty and social justice, and multidisciplinary
1: perspectives through service learning.
0: Welcome, Dr. Jose Calderon. You don't mind if I call you Jose, do you?
1: Oh, no, brother, Uh, and it's uh, good to be here with you, and we have a long history together, uh, uh, seeing each other at ASA and uh, I I really like the name of of this discussion. You know, sociology is talking real shit, and so <laughs> this is this is real stuff. Uh, thank you for Absolutely. doing this.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I, I you know, it, it really is inspired by all those conversations that I've had with people like yourself and other friends of mine that we run into ASA, and it's we we go have a drink at the bar. And then we start talking real shit, you know, get beyond just the theoretical, you know, to the practical implications of these things and so on. So and that's why I had to have you on, because, you know, currently right now there's a lot of stuff that's going on that you have a certain expertise in that I think the general public would be interested in what you have to say about it. You know, so. First thing I want to ask, because I've been thinking of different warm-up questions from my audience, I used to ask how you got into sociology, but almost everyone has very similar stories. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, okay? I want a book recommendation. Because, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, people running out of stuff to do. Give me a book recommendation. What should I be reading, brother?
1: Uh, You know, I'd like to do two, uh, if that's okay with you, uh, James. Uh, I actually have two students that... uh, 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 graduated from the Claremont Colleges, one of them from Pitzer and one of them from Pomona College, but they were both part of my classes. And uh, one, of, uh, one of them is Juan Delada. He's now an um, uh, associate professor of, of American uh, Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Uh, he's written a book called Inland Shift uh race space and capital in southern california and uh you know the the uh the thing with his brother is he does come from a farm worker background the uh, the Coachella valley his uh uh family was all involved and uh uh what I like about his a book uh is he um uh was an organizer uh, when he was at Pitzer College, he he helped organize the dining hall workers. He got involved in uh, organizing the workers uh, out 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 at the airlines. Uh, so he he comes from an activist uh, background, and uh, he was really Pitzer's, uh, uh first Rhodes Scholar ever. Uh, wow! Uh, although uh, I don't think he enjoyed the Rhodes scholarship as much because he wanted to be back in the community. But uh, he's now become a well-known human geographer who works at the intersections of race, space, and power. And in regards to what we're talking about uh, in terms of my life, he's an example of what I call an activist scholar uh, who Mm. used participatory research, everything from field notes uh, to years of participant observation. Uh, So with warehouse workers out here in the Inland Empire, he gathered over 100 interviews uh, alongside community members and policymakers. He used surveys and reports uh, and wrote about the logistics infrastructure uh, in this uh, region. Uh, and what stands out in his research, brother, is the connection between the local and the global. You know, how globalization has restructured race and space and power relations in Southern California, especially the Inla- Inland Empire region. And I have to share with you, James, I'm really into this whole issue of space and uh, uh, how we can create examples of the just and equitable world we want to live in, that we have the capacity to do that. Uh, and so I've really been working at that in, in my organizing. And I'm so glad Juan now, uh, you know, he he's uh, in his research, he looks at the growth of the, of the logistics economy. Uh, of uh, community distribution, commodity distribution, you know, which has controlled the movement of goods and how warehouse workers then, in response, began to organize themselves. So it's really about the post-industrial period, you know, when many companies in this region deindustrialized, they closed their plants. It resulted in a loss of thousands of jobs, but where uh, commodity distribution comes in the logistics economy, and it became an alternative and it hired primarily Latinx workers out here because Mm. areas like San Bernardino and Riverside, Pomona, they primarily become uh, Latino enclaves and uh, uh, with African-Americans, some Asian-Americans. And he shows how, you know, this whole logistics industry, these corporations were able to influence uh, private and public spending, our tax dollars uh, to fund ports, highways, uh, uh, allow for more trucks. Uh, you know, you, you take these freeways, the TAN or the 210 uh, trucks all the time, and then rail lines uh, in making Southern California, and then particularly this region, uh, uh, Ontario, uh, Pomona, all these areas, a space that uh, is really a centralization for local and global capital. And he uh, talks about what he calls, in relation to this, spatial politics of growth. Uh, So it resulted in this massive expansion of warehouses. If you fly into L.A., you see for miles and miles and miles of warehouses, uh, and where the warehouse workers were primarily Latino, many from immigrant backgrounds. Uh, And, you know, uh, uh, because of being at the lowest levels of the stratification structure, then uh, not ever being able to receive livable wages. So not only did corporations like Walmart make the argument for the support of this restructuring, but so did some of the local politicians in these cities and traditional, traditional economists such as John Husing, who promoted that this type of growth is exactly what the Inland Empire need as many of these industries moved out and that uh, they would create jobs and economic development. Of course, what they didn't talk about is the pollution that it created, uh, our our taxes being used for growth, um, and also then resulting in racial conflicts in the region with, uh, you know, what he describes and goes into quite deeply uh, the issues of power, space, and privilege, as white privilege. So th- this led to a lot of local community struggles. Uh, we saw, and he, he described that, we saw the r- rise of the Ku Klux Klan, protesting corners uh, on Arrow and Grove in Rancho Cucamonga, uh, the Minutemen, um, and uh, local community struggles then questioning these injustices created by this logistics economic development, including the environment degradation of our barrios, the rise in health problems in people of color, in our communities, cancer, asthma, uh, caused by diesel emissions from trucks carrying their loads to these ports uh, uh, in the Inland Empire. And, uh, you know, I, I was going to talk about this later, uh, James, but Also, this is also why we have such a large percentage of our people now being affected uh, uh, by COVID. Uh, It has to do with uh, some of these preconditions that they've had. And when they get COVID, then, uh, you know, not only results in hospitalization, uh, but uh, a lot of death. So um, uh, he has a whole section in there on that book just to finish on. The resistance that emerged, uh, uniting labor, community, and environmental organizations, to where uh, you know the warehouse workers today are being uh, organized. Uh, they have a warehouse a worker uh, uh, center uh, and cooperative uh, in uh, Ontario, and they are fighting for just wages and benefits uh, for workers. Uh, they've protested in the streets around environmental justice. And really an example of multiracial organizing priority, prioritizing quality of life, uh, social justice initiatives. So, James, this is a book I'm I'm promoting. Uh, uh, It's uh, about our area and also the the whole growth of the citrus industry and how that history of our building this entire region uh, of workers has, has literally been left out so that's one james
0: before you go on to number two sure. I mean, it brought up some thoughts to me because i don't know if you knew this but i was a warehouse worker for about nine years for ups oh, is
1: that right yeah. oh my yeah, god
0: yes warehouses right and i always tell people that if you want to appreciate your job no matter what the job is go work at ups for six months you know from that's right. the summertime when it's a hundred degrees outside because i live in the san fernando valley um, about a mile away from where I used to work, right? And it gets 100 degrees easy in the summertime yep. out here. But yep. in the trailer, a metal trailer, it's 120 degrees, you yep. know? yeah. And so you're in these hot trailers, having to unload 1,200 packages an hour, or load 650 packages an hour. And I remember because I was a pretty fast unloader, they used to say, hey, we'll give you some extra hours. You come in and you unload what they call priming the sword aisle from this Mesquite trailer, right, from Mesquite, Texas. And yep. inside the trailer is a bunch of mesquite charcoal, right? That had leaked all over the trailer. So for weeks, I, I you know, uh, I would be coughing up like black stuff coming out of my lungs, you know. So when, when you po- bring up this stuff, the the horrific conditions in places like this, it's this the worst job I've ever had in my whole entire life. I still have back pain and knee pain from that job. And then I know we're going to talk about more of this later, but you brought up the thing of COVID too, and. I've been making this argument. Last, last night they had the Super Bowl and they're like, you know, we want to welcome all these, you know, these heroes who work at the nursing right, industry and doctors. Right, right. I understand your love and welcoming them. But what about the people working in the meatpacking industry, the fields, the grocery store, delivering packages who have far less protection than those people right. in the hospitals? You know? That's right. That's right. Why are we and, not treating uh, them like heroes, you
1: know? And the, and the warehouse workers, you know? Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, 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 we're involved in uh, supporting uh, right now the, uh, uh, a campaign in the Double Tree Hotel in Ontario. This is the one that uh, brings in uh, air, uh, uh, airline pilots and stewardesses who stay there, and uh, where well, there's been a breakout of COVID. And the uh, the managers have hide it and and, uh, have been hiding it and they don't do anything about it. So Unite H-E-R-E has come uh, in there and that's the only way it's gotten out to the public demanding, you know, that uh, uh, these workers uh, be treated justly and also that there be precautions taken. But that's also taking place and is true in the warehouse and uh, everything you talk about, James, uh, uh, Juan De Lara talks about in his book about the long-lasting effects, uh, health effects of working uh, in those uh, warehouses. And like you said, some of them are hot, some of them are cold. You know, right. uh, depending yep. on on yeah, what there's being. no heaters or air
0: conditioners in those. They're places. bringing
1: in from the ports, and yeah. yet uh, uh, Juan uh, documents the tremendous amount of profits that are being made. By these large corporations, uh, not only nationally, but internationally, uh, yeah. and the direct link to the ports, and then everything they do to keep the workers uh, from unionizing uh, yeah. and uh, figuring out how to divide them. So, so it's a great book. And uh, uh, like you said, is exactly uh, a part of what we're about right now, and certainly part of uh, the struggles that are taking place out here uh, as restructuring in the economy is going on. So so it's a real example. And uh, to me also, uh, Juan de Lara represents uh, an example of one who it, has been a participant, uh, uses uh, participatory research uh, interviews, and was directly involved in those struggles. So so I, uh, I want to recommend that book uh, uh, for uh, people to read. It's a great book, and it's well done. What's the, the other, other book? Yeah. Uh, the other book, uh, um, brother, is a, a book uh, very similar, uh, Geneve Carpio. Uh, and again, Genevieve, Je- I met uh, when she was a student at Pomona College, took my class. Uh, uh, at that time, we got into discussions on issues of space and how you know, space uh, is contested. Uh, so that on the one hand, there are spaces we develop in terms of family, uh, taking care of each other, uh, organizing. Then the other space, uh, that's one based on exploitation. So she took this. Uh, she graduated with a BA from Pomona College. And she's now the assistant professor in UCLA Cesar Chavez Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies. Uh, and in her book, uh, uh, it, it's a great book. Uh, she demonstrates the co- interconnectedness of mobility and race. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, uh, it's called collisions at the crossroads, how place and mobility make race. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, published by UC press. And, uh, again, uh, You know, uh, just between these two books, we could have a whole class because she, too, uh, then looks at the interconnectedness of race uh, and racialization in the 20th century. And then again, how regional uh, authority power structures construct racial hierarchies in the Inland Empire by uh, and this is very significant and uh, something new. She really looks at by controlling the mobility of working people and how they use that interconnectedness of mobility and race to uh, uh, oppress us. Uh, So she focuses not just on migration and immigration, but the everyday movement of people and the practices shaping those movements in California. Everything from bicycle laws that they used way Mm -hmm. back during the citrus industry to criminalize Japanese agricultural workers, these growers would actually keep track of whether Japanese workers were getting bicycles, uh, and they didn't want them to have bicycles because they were afraid they would move away and they would be they would uh, lose their right. ability uh, uh, to use their labor. Uh, this is in uh, the era of alien land laws, and so she documents that. Uh, she documents popular radio broadcasts that treated Mexican drivers with suspicion of joyriding laws, uh, and uh, uh, they used that to incarcerate Mexican youth in un, uh, during the Depression era in unprecedented numbers, uh, to the hyper-policing of Latino motorists through uh, sobriety checks that uh, targeted undocumented drivers prior to 2015. And, uh, Genevieve, by the way, because I was really involved in these, uh, uh, struggles, uh, uh, you know, our, our study showed that in fact 97% of those being stopped at these so called drunk driving checkpoints, 97% were undocumented and they would take their cars, uh, uh, and they wouldn't pick them up. They had to pay uh, a t- for the ticket. Uh, a- and they had to pay for the truck that took the car away. So most undocumented never picked up their cars. The cities sold them. And uh, all these cities in this region were making fortunes in terms of the money that they used in auctions uh, selling their cars. So hmm. we were able to exposed that. Genevieve was part of that. She was one of the activists uh, and helping us in those meetings. It, it was that kind of organizing that actually led to driver's licenses in California. And, you know, now we've had way over a million undocumented that have received right. driver's license. Uh, uh, we thank Gil's, We thank Gil Cedillo that never stopped, that continued. But some of those early struggles, like in Pomona, were... Uh, uh led to organizing i uh james i i it, it was so beautiful to see in the very beginning it was students who would hold signs in front of the checkpoints telling uh drivers there's a checkpoint up ahead and telling <laughs> them go that way go that way they yeah. they saved so many and then soon james you know what started happening uh, uh the families themselves would hide their signs under their beds. And when they saw, because you never knew until the Friday night where the checkpoint was, and they'd pull out those signs and they began to do it themselves. Uh, so many that uh, that were saved, but we were able to change uh, any kind of checkpoints in front of schools, right. in front of uh, churches, uh, 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 cutting out uh, any checkpoints in the daytime before the driver's license. So So Genevieve in her book reveals how, you know, the dialectic of restrictions and permissions on mobility were connected to race making and how particularly in the the inland Southern California, uh, this reality, she ties and does a great history on the citrus industry, how uh, the growers controlled the mobility of a labor force along racial lines. uh, When the mobility of non-white and poor white workers challenged that flow, it it was met with uh, efforts to manage it. it. So in some of its most extreme form, James, people of color's mobility uh, was met by criminalization and even imprisonment. Even bicyclists were arrested at high rates for for behaviors as common as riding without a light in the evening. And in inland communities, Three or more violations of such rules could result in six months of jail time, not to yeah. mention the, the hefty fees. So uh, not only is her book about all that, I mean, it's, it's really frontier area research, but it's about resistance to the suppression with people of color then eventually coming up with innovative strategies to overcome the confinement by state forces. Uh, she documents how American Indian children ran away from federal boarding schools at the turn of the 19th century. Mexican-American youth ma- manipulating their registration records to avert police arrests in the mid-20th century. And in the contemporary period, period as I mentioned, the organizing uh, efforts to uh, unjust, track, uh, unjust uh, traffic checkpoints uh, that uh, ultimate really resulted in uh, our being able to pass a uh, driver's license for undocumented. Her book has an activist stance because she was in, involved. So beyond the academic, she shares lesson lessons on how spatial mobility has become a battleground for equity and uh, and, and and brought forward how grassroots organizing, uh, has resulted in fights for cultural claims for inclusion, such as the reimagining of car culture and the organizing efforts for public transit justice throughout uh, Los Angeles, uh, you know, such as the Bus Riders Union and other examples. So those two books I, I would really recommend at this time, and they both are really examples of the kind of work I carry out using participatory research, not only to then write a book or to have uh, articles published in journals, but to give back to the community as lessons on how they can organize about uh, different forms of historical oppression that have left out our history. And also the most important part uh, of documenting that when you walk into the restaurants here in Laverne, in San Dimas, in Glendora, they always promote the citrus companies and that history, uh, right. and not at all of the Mexican workers. The only place you see an example of that are, uh, is, is, is the warehouse where you go and get coffee and everything in Claremont. They actually have a warehouse there. And there you do have the pictures of a lot of the women who worked in the citrus industry. Of the barrios, uh, uh, Claremont had a barrio, uh, and in every one of these communities, like Claremont, they had segregated schools. While uh, sure. well, she she brings forward that history, uh, and as a beginning, I think for us to organize in these areas and and bring to these cities a history that has totally been excluded and totally left out. So, so those are two great books that I uh, I uh, promote and propose, brother.
0: Well, you know, first, the, the, that book also brings up, both these books up bring up concepts of resistance, which I think is really important. I mean, resistance is really powerful to read where you see the powerless practicing these forms of resistance, sometimes not as successfully as others. But it's really important to understand that people didn't just lie down for this stuff. But um, also when you were talking about this concept of space and this racialization and, and, uh, and this policing in ways of space, too, I was thinking about racial profiling. You know, and yeah. Um, they, yeah, they point out like Inglewood, uh, for instance, in the African American t- city of Inglewood. LAPD actually profiled the neighborhoods around Inglewood to kind of make sure that when people left Inglewood, they didn't go to places like Culver City and places That's like right. that. Yeah, to keep them out of there. And I remember when I was growing up, I went from a predominantly black neighborhood um, called Pacoima, which was predominantly black then, it's predominantly brown now, to North Hollywood, in a low-income Latino neighborhood. And I'd never been racially profiled in either one of those neighborhoods. But then at one point, my mom moves us on the border of a predominantly white neighborhood in Van Nuys. I was racially profiled a lot at that point, right? And it it really made me feel like they were trying to tell me, this isn't your space, you know, at that point. And ever since then, I've only lived in communities of color, you know, because I don't feel comfortable for me or my kids living in predominantly white neighborhoods, you know, and so on and so on. Always been an issue for me. You know You know. I also saw racial profiling at USC of little kids who were riding their bikes through campus, where one time the police had stopped them and sat them all on the sidewalk, you know, and uh they were they had they had them handcuffed and they were just sitting on the sidewalk, these little 12, 10-year-old, 12-year-old kids, these black boys who lived in the neighborhood. And I asked the police officer, what, what did they stop for? And, you know, he didn't even answer. Them. He just kept writing and stuff and, you know, things. And then they let them go. But it was their way of saying, don't ride your bike through the campus. And some people went, well, well, is it a private college? It's a public space. You know, it was open yeah, to the no. public. You know?
1: and, and then they start categorizing, uh, uh, you know, we know that's a very uh, dominant in the research on just uh, Mexicanos getting together on a corner or african Americans, mm-hmm. they immediately define him as a gang and then treat yeah. him as a gang. Uh, and so uh, with Floyd and others, you know, what has happened recently, we, we've really seen uh, publicly now uh, uh, this racial profiling that's gone on for, for so long, you know, all the way back to the Zoot suit suitors uh, and um, uh, has been a means of uh, a oppressing our community and also categorizing us as uh the way trump did uh on uh television that uh you know we're criminals uh uh we're uh, uh rapists uh Im- immigrants uh i mean this was being done on a national level creating that kind of consciousness and we see the results of that today so so her book uh, uh both of these books uh Bring that out, the, the racial profiling that took place that not only served the purpose of uh, pressing us, but then ensuring that we uh, uh, w- were the workforce and pitting us one against the other. Uh, so, right. in places like Riverside, um, uh, 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 believe it or not, some of the growers, even in Congress, began to defend the Mexican immigrant. Because uh, they did see mobi- begin to see mobility among some of the Japanese and the Chinese. So they actually went to Congress to, uh, uh, to tr- uh, try and get some legislation uh, for the immigrant who stayed. Uh, mm-hmm. And they began to paint this picture that, well, the Mexican ha- has families. They stay. These others, like these Filipinos, they're single. And they... Uh, uh, they began to paint really racial profile, the Japanese right. and the Chinese, uh, right. and in, a, in another way, uh, uh, actually ra- racial profiling the Mexicano, wh- while saying good things about them, they're, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're family oriented, they stay, but at the same time, right, that, uh, you know, they're good workers and all that, uh, uh, defining them in such a way that still uh, Criminalize
0: them, um, right, yeah. man? Because that, thats a double-edged sword to say, "Oh, they're family-oriented; they stay." Yeah. Because yeah. other people say, "You know what the problem with them is? They're family-oriented and they stay." Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. At
1: the same yeah. time, they have these oh. kids, and they're going to stay here. And now we have these quote-unquote anchor babies.
0: They'll say, "You know."
1: So, right. right. Oh, and and uh, you know, and uh, I mean, going to the extent of, well, they don't—they don't speak English, you know—as—as yeah. uh, as a good thing, because then. Oh, uh, wow uh uh they're 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 good workers they're gonna they stay the they're not they're not gonna they're not gonna move out you know yeah, yeah uh, they have
0: and, no choice they gotta work for us in the that's field, right. right that's right yeah.
1: and that's yeah. why we need them and we need some legislation to uh to keep them here you know
0: yeah. so. you know you know um I wanted to say something before I go into the first question just you know this kind of shows a lot about you because these are two former students. Yes Right. yes, and this shows how generous you are, right? So the first thing you're gonna do is talk about two books two former students, are. so one it shows your generosity of spirit to make sure that you talk about these people who are younger than you who have gone through this, and that you know that how they are doing this amazing work get recognized, and it could also say a lot about your teaching too, that you're teaching people who are making such miraculous work so so, I appreciate that from you. so let me yeah, let me thank say you, James. I, Let's get into your work, though. Okay, let's get okay. into your work, All right. Because sure. you've done a lot of amazing work, too. And you've done a lot of research on the roots of migration, right? right. And currently, right. Joe Biden is working on this new immigration plan. And right. supposedly, one of the things he's going to look at is the roots of migration, okay? What are That's the right. reasons why people are migrating in the right. first place? So what do you think of it? And what does your research inform you that Joe Biden should do?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I do want to say, you know, uh, uh, again, this is our area. And um, uh, uh, believe it or not, uh, a lot of my research, James, in the early years, uh, uh, I came from Colorado. I, I was a Chicano activist uh, uh, way back to, I'm an old guy, 68, 69, the anti war movement. Dude, how many, oh, you how, know, and, you, and you jog, right? Oh yeah, every other, I I just I just ran four miles this morning. Dude, man, uh, I, I I'm not running yeah, four blocks. I'm four miles. So yeah, yeah, I, ain't yeah. old, I ain't gonna call you old brother. I'm gonna call you old. Yeah, and uh, uh, so uh, I, every year I do the Elder Olympics at uh, Pasadena, uh, and I always uh, place first, second, or third. You know, uh, I, bet. I my, bet. But my wife says because there's nobody left, uh, and <laughs> and and that's possible. You know, no, but. Uh, 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 it really helps to uh, keep me in shape, and I I have to share with you, uh, brother, that uh, in August, uh, uh, my entire family and myself we we did get COVID, um, and uh, my wife and my sons were able to uh, recover in three weeks. I went through two months of uh, living hell, and uh, I, I do think though that my running uh, and my uh, health helped me. I um, At one point, I was uh, so sick, I had to go to emergency twice at uh, Kaiser because I, I had all the symptoms of temperature, 102 that wouldn't go down, uh, two weeks without having any taste. Everything tasted like cardboard, uh, uh, chills, uh, not being able to uh, sleep at night. I even had what was called COVID toe a toe that's rolled uh, yeah I had it and uh, uh yeah. I, I told the doctor and I did uh crazy and uh, my kidneys hurt and at one point the second time in emergency I, uh, James I really wondered am I gonna make it because uh, I uh, uh, could feel the stuff in my chest but I couldn't cough uh you know I I and the doctor was telling me you need to cough and I I said I I I tried but I I and if it turns to pneumonia, that's what right. a lot of people get into trouble. And uh, mm-hmm. thankfully, I was able to get the kind of uh, help and health where I did begin to cough stuff up, and uh, uh, you know, I'm back to running, and I, I uh, you know, uh, you know, feel feel good about that. But we can't um, call you
0: old, brother. We can't call you old, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah uh, better uh, help but,
0: a lot of younger ones, man.
1: Yeah. But I wanted to relate that uh, you know my uh, I, I came out here from Colorado specifically because uh, after 14 years of organizing literally on nothing, I mean at one point I was living on five dollars a week uh, when I was uh, working with the union out in Delano and went back home, and those 14 years I lived on the only reason I applied uh, for a fellowship at UCLA. Uh, this is in 84, after organizing for 14, I was married and had two children. And mm-hmm. I got accepted, and so we moved out here. I actually lived in El Sereno. One of our neighbors actually was Antonio Villar at the time. He be- really became uh, Antonio Villaragosa. Uh, but I, um, uh, when I was at UCLA, I e- eventually started looking for a job, and I did get an internship in the city of Monterey Park. It was just an accident. And uh, I ended up working in the city manager's office uh, in an internship. And this is when all hell is breaking loose because uh, they have a mayor, that uh, Hatch, uh, Barry Hatch, who introduced a resolution that was passed making English the official language and then cutting out all the city uh, affairs in Spanish and Chinese. Uh, trying to force the uh, Chinese businesses and the uh, uh, Chicano businesses to only have English signs. Well, I got involved in massive protests. And uh, to make a long story short, we uh, were able to defeat Barry Hatch. He was the early Trump. And then we were able to elect Judy Chu as the mayor, who then becomes a, a congressional representative, she is the representative today of uh, District 27, which is in this entire region. Uh, I tell that story because it's Judy Chu then with a group called the Closers. Uh, they're made up of uh, of Representative Chu, Linda Sanchez, Zoe Lofgren, Lucille Roybal, Nidia Velazquez, Yvette Clark, and Karen Bass, who are, have introduced the Biden-Harris immigration reform legislation through the House of Representatives. This this uh, bill supports the allocation of funds for processing, so to take the millions being proposed for more fence and more border officers and use it for more efficient uh, means of doing away with a backlog of thousands waiting in line for legalization. I know a family uh, who has been waiting 20 years. Uh, 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 and... Uh, So this will help them. It includes the No Ban Act, which rescinds the Muslim ban and and ensures that no future president can ban individuals from entering the country based on their religion. It strengthens the Reuniting Families Act, which reduces visa backlogs to provide humane and timely reunification, provides equality for LGBTQ immigrant families, and includes the Power Act, which helps to create safe. And just workplaces by providing legal protection for immigrant workers who experience retaliation for exercising their rights under existing labor and employment laws. And also, brother, um, you know, uh, uh, this plan now uh, excludes, uh, you know, it's turning around the exclusion by Trump of uh, excluding undocumented from the census. It extends relief for Liberians living in the U.S. It's it's uh, ending the Remain in Mexico program for asylum seekers, and it stops the construction of the border wall. Now, uh, included in this, I have to relate this to you, brother, in terms of the multiracial character that often our immigrant please rights- Please do, movement,
0: brother, please do. Uh,
1: our, our immigrant rights movement tends to leave this out. Of the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants, Uh, There are 575,000 of them, brother, are black. Black immigrants, much like African-Americans, are disproportionately targeted. Again, racial profiling by the criminal justice system, which often leads to deportation and detention. Consequently, although uh, black immigrants only represent 5% of the undocumented population in the United States, They represent more than 20% of immigrants facing detention and deportation on criminal grounds. Uh, We need to include that as part of our movement. You know
0: what, man, Let let me just interject right here, because I so agree with you on this, because- I've had this debate and argument with some of my African-American friends, right, that they're like, we don't have time to worry about DACA, so we don't have time to worry That's about right. immigrants and so yeah. on. And I have to point this out, that do you understand that our people are actually disproportionately deported more than other groups? Our people are immigrants. Our people are LGBTQIA right. and so on. That's so right. This is so important to see that connection. I appreciate you pulling, pulling that
1: out. And, and, you know? and the reason I raised that is what is positive is there's someone in that administration that's raising that and bringing yeah. it to the forefront.
0: Dude, and, you know, go, go, ahead, go ahead. Let me, yeah, let me just say bro, this real quick. Let me yeah, just say go this ahead, quick, brother. Go I want to talk to you about this because I got to be honest about something, right? I even did a podcast called Being a Reluctant Biden Supporter. Yeah, where yeah. Where me and a few people like, man, we do not want to vote for Joe Biden but we're going right. to vote for creepy Joe Biden and stuff. But I have to admit, he's kind of hitting a lot of the right notes
1: right now, man. Right. Well, some right notes, and, and that's what I want to uh, you know go into yeah. a little bit. Uh, the, uh, the other part, uh, I have to share this with you, James. Uh, uh, when Obama got uh, into office at the very beginning, I was part of a research team that uh, actually wrote a big, thick document that went to Obama, Uh, and uh, I did a whole section on immigration, and in that section, um, uh, there was a strategy uh, to address the root causes of migration from Central America and Mexico. Right, right. Uh, it included a part on reestablishing the asylum process at the southern border, and I have to share with you though what was very important is that in that document that I wrote, uh, I argued uh, that part of the roots of why immigrants are coming here is because not only in the places that they're out of their violent violence, their gangs, there's uh, uh, the cartels, but that. There's so much corruption going on, and then the lack of jobs, right. uh, even caused by U.S. corporations like Toyota that move over there, pay the workers very low, uh, and so they 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 come here uh, for survival. Uh, and and uh, I argued in that document way back then that if the U.S. federal government was really interested in doing something about immigration long term, it would work to set it would work. To strengthen the send, sending countries' economies. And there's no reason why the US could not develop bilateral job creating approaches in key immigrant sending areas. In places like Mexico, there are five, five key areas uh, that are like counties from where they come from. If the US was really interested, instead of you know supporting these maquiladoras, which I had family working on the border, making $50 a week, you know, a week. When when here, uh, an immigrante, if, if, if uh, even a day laborer, if they're supported by day labor centers and they're defended, uh, they can make that, uh, you know, often in, 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 in one day. Uh, so if the U.S. government was really interested, we argued at that time, uh, you know, uh, uh, move away from policies that merely focus on enforcement, that racially profiles our communities to uh, uh, processes that would help those economies create jobs. I I tell you, the undocumented would not come. But the reality, the reality is that uh, this country, like European countries and other major capitalist countries, colonized those places to use their labor and use mm-hmm. their resources. Uh, in the Philippines, and then the extra labor, they they uh, uh, forced deportation to places right. like Hawaii in the case of the Filipinos, uh, Mexicanos came here. So not only using their labor over there, but using their labor over here yeah. and capital uh, really benefiting from it. Uh, and if they dare organize, they deport them or in times of economic crisis, deport them uh, that that has been uh, their plan, and who has been in power to do that has been these rich corporations who have uh, uh, benefited from it. Well, I have to tell you one thing, James. Someone in the administration, uh, different than Obama, has taken that part, and now uh, they uh, have included in their plan... Implementing a strategy, like you said, to address the root causes of migration from Central America, reestablishing the asylum process, uh, uh, going back. Uh, And then there's talk about uh, economic development uh, in the immigrant-centered countries such as El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Now, James, I have to say this, though. There's talk about it. And I'm reading about it, no. and at least I'm happy that they're raising it. But there's no getting around uh, that uh, it's the mass movements that created DACA. Uh, DACA students taking over Obama offices throughout the country. Uh, any forward progress has come through those movements. So uh, uh, the the part that I'm still struggling around and organizing like you that we have to organize is that there's still an enforcement part. There's the negative part of raising immigration on the level of security. So it only it places a 100 days pause in deportations, but just to review and revise their enforcement policies. And this pause only affects certain people with final orders of removal Ah, uh, you have to study the detail. Uh, what? Because he says a hundred-day pause in deportation. It does not apply to other forms of enforcement, such as arrests, uh, detentions, uh, and uh, you know removal proceedings. It it doesn't. Uh, it it uh, you know. So beginning on February, uh, beginning this month, the enforcement priorities covering cover everything under the Department of Homeland Security discretion. And you got it. They use the word discretion in relation to identifying and uh, detaining undocumented. Uh, Hence, the priorities are aimed, again, to DHS's discretion against anyone who they determine. And, you know, uh, in terms of racial profiling, how they've defined us, uh, who they define as terrorism, spying or threats to national security. Or this is important anyone who has attempted to cross the border. And if mm. it's one thing that I'm going to fight hard on, uh, James, because I I have so many undocumented right now right. who are defined as being criminals and felonies right. for the simple reason that they were deported and they came back and all they're doing now is working uh, under this, a uh, 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 felony that if they get caught again, they could end up not being they they end up in jail, you know. Uh, and so, so there's still that part of the Biden right. immigration part, uh, the the I- interim enforcement priorities in this 100 day uh, pause, uh, you know, that only applied to those who are currently in jail who would be released by January 20th. And does not apply to people who are currently not in jail or in prison. Again, the catch word is the word discretion and does not leave out that immigrants can be detained, who are not included in these priorities. And is something that we should push hard for to hold the administration accountable. The struggle does not stop.
0: No. And that's the thing. Even though he's hit a few of the right notes, I'm surprised he hit any right notes. But at the same time, no, no. I mean, you, you still have to read the fine print, go through all this and keep pushing. You know, just like with Obama, Obama in his second term moves more to the left. But I think a lot because of those, those protests you're talking about, the 99 percent movement, a variety of people. But also, you know, something you were talking about, this this uh, criminalization crossing the border. Julian Castro brought that up when he was running yeah. for uh, president. That's you know, right. he said that as long as people are criminalized for getting across the border, you'll always be able to take their children from them, okay? That's right. Because that's what we that's do right. when people violate a law is we remove that's them right. from their children, right? So he says you have to decriminalize this concept. That's otherwise, right. this is going to right. be a problem. So, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and, James, that is so key that uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, we need to turn around the focus on enforcement. Uh, and then the other part, even the even people in the left, James, or some of these immigrant rights organizations, they keep pushing comprehensive immigration reform. And uh, why we had problems, many of us uh, with that language was that many of them were agreeing that to get a little bit, they were agreeing with the enforcement part, uh, uh, you know, and. Uh, 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 Thats has to be part of the struggle that what we want is not for people to have to wait uh, 10 years, 12 years to be able to legalize. Uh, and meanwhile, there's all these mass deportations that go on. Uh, we, we need to turn around that language uh, and, and and see the real contributions of our uh, immigrant communities. You know, well, what we want is a speedy legalization. According to the American American Progress Organization, a speedier legalization would result, listen to this, it would result right now in an additional $1.4 trillion to the gross national product between the present and 2022. Uh, resident workers, workers who are here, uh, would benefit with an additional 791 billion in personal income and the economy would create an average of an additional 203,000 jobs per year within 5 years of their legalization undocumented immigrant workers would be would be earning 25% more than they are earning resulting in an additional tax revenue of 184 billion with 116 billion to the federal government and 68 billion to state and local governments. These statistics sustain the argument that the sooner there's asylum and legalization, the more significant gains can be made for all working people and the greater the gains for the U.S. economy. Uh, This is also about, brother, that uh, what it would mean is um, unionization, that uh, uh, rather than dividing the workers, the workers who are here, knowing these statistics, should be organizing alongside the undocumented in order to, rather than spend their time being divided, to unionize and fight for what are common uh, uh, workers' uh, struggles. Uh, so uh, overall, this is all about resources uh, to allow for hearings and that, that ensure the rights and interests of children and families. Uh, So there can be speedy legalization uh, and so that they can be released as quickly as possible. So uh, uh, that's our struggle now, and it it continues. But I believe that the only reason we're getting uh, some talk about uh, some progressive immigration policies is as a result of the organizing at the grassroots and these organizations throughout the country who have not let up. Uh, and uh i uh what i, I, I just one last thing uh, uh, uh james I, I i got out and i registered people to vote i got out the vote our organization the latino latino roundtable got out vote we made phone calls to georgia uh because biden did say one thing and we're going to hold him accountable and, and and trump had clearly already gone to the courts and was coming out against daca uh, right. Affecting 790,000 DACA recipients. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one was uh, uh, temporary protective status. Over 400,000 families who have been here over 20 years from places like El Salvador, from Nicaragua, from Guatemala, from Honduras. Uh, Biden came out and said the first thing he would do is he would su- use executive privilege on DACA and support temporary protective status. So even uh, when these cases are going all the way to the Supreme Court, whatever the Supreme Court decides, uh, Biden has the power and the executive privilege then to save uh, uh, such programs as DACA, and, and that's big. So when I say the movements, they they helped elect uh, Biden and this administration, we're going to hold them accountable. But at the same time, there are no illusions. And I only see this time period, James, as a space of time when we can uh, uh, organize even more to hopefully in the long term, James. This is what keeps me going and gives me a spirit uh, is to uh, not not just have people think that changing uh, administrations or changing politicians is going to change the structural foundations the capitalist foundation an entire system that the way is structured is not structured in the interests of working people it will never be uh, the the uh, taxes will flow up and that long term we need to establish uh, another system and there's a whole movement emerging nationally uh, the new system movement of cooperatives, of employee-owned companies, of public banks, uh, that in the long term, I really believe we're getting there and we need to do research on it and promote it and get our students involved in creating those kinds of new forms of a new system. And, and I do believe what Gar Alperitz uh, uh, has, has written in the book, America Beyond Capitalism, that a whole new system is emerging right now uh, and that in the long term, that people are going to see that things like universal health care, free tuition, the right to, uh, you know, uh, the right to a good education, uh, the right to a quality of life in terms of the environment, that that will win in the end. I'm sure of it. And I'm sure that this is uh, what a lot of those young people who worked in the Biden campaign are uh, not only seeing but they're analyzing their, and they're agreeing with and it's not just a fad it's not just a one week thing or or where we get together on weekends and uh, sing kumbaya uh, uh, thinking that's going to uh, uh, end the racial profiling and the, the racial differences but that it's going to take long term struggle and that we can create examples of that kind of thinking and that is what's pushing Biden and we'll only push Biden to be accountable if we continue to organize daily, to write daily, and to get out our uh, uh, vision and our thinking daily.
0: Well, dude, first I'm gonna say, take a breath, man. Take a breath. You know, I wish people could. Well, I get all excited, you right James. Now. You get me all oh, excited, man. man. Don't you ever tell me about <laughs> how you're getting old or anything like that, man. Because you got so much energy. I wish people could see you right now on the podcast. You're practically jumping out of the chair talking about this. But no, man. You know, a, a lot of what you're talking about, um, all of it, I agree with completely. But I, it, I kept thinking as you were talking about it. America needs to stop bullshitting. Let's just stop bullshitting. The truth is we like undocumented labor and we like, like you said, to take advantage of labor in those countries, right? Not us as working people doesn't benefit us, but those companies sure love it. And I remember seeing um, Douglas Massey give a talk once and he said something about how if you want to deal with immigration problems, you have to kind of deal with these push-pull factors. And he said, one of the things is, he goes back in the day when the border was more porous and easy to get across, Yes, you had more immigrants coming here, but you had less here because they would come here and go home, right? That's right? Now, because it's so hard to get back and forth, they come here and they stay and then try to bring That's their right. families to come live with That's them. That's right. That's you know? right. So clearly, like all these things you're talking about, and I love the fact that let's deal with the conditions in their own country. Because That's you know right. you know what Guatemalans love? Guatemala. You know, and Mexicans love That's Mexico.
1: Right. Right? Oh, they, they wouldn't come here if they had good jobs and, uh, you know, they can, and, uh, uh, and, you know, James here, the real issue is an issue of power. Uh, and this Republican in Orange County, you know, uh, uh, at least he was honest. He came right out and said, he said, you think I'm going to vote for legalization? This was in a forum. I was there. He says, uh, 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 I, I won't vote for it because they will be able to vote. Can you imagine, he said, 11 million more being able to vote, he says. And then he said, they're not going to vote for me. And he's right. You know, he's right. And so uh, uh, it's an issue of power. Uh, We know already uh, the numbers, uh, the the number of cities. There are 10 in San Bernardino-Riverside that we call majority-minority cities, majority people of color cities. But... We may be demographically the majority, but we don't have the power yet. Uh, and so when we fight for legalization, it's not separated from voting rights uh, and having the right to vote. Uh, it's not just an issue of jobs and we really need to uh, reach out to our African-American community and other communities that uh, uh, you know, uh, think on the level that it's competition for jobs and they're taking my job, uh, that kind of thing. Ah, uh, because uh, it's it's the same common struggle, and we do need to go all the way back to uh, 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 Africans being brought as slaves. Right. Uh, imagine all those years they worked, and they weren't paid anything, uh, and and that's what allowed the Rockefellers, the Mellons, the Morgans, the Duponts, uh, the Kuhn-Lebs to accumulate capital to buy railroads and. Uh, uh, uh accumulate all that capital uh and of course uh this system always made them the heroes and put up their statues uh uh, uh somehow uh, we're sociologists somehow saying uh genetically they were just smarter than we were uh yeah. and and they deserve the rewards back of that yeah. capital yeah. when it was really our uh african brothers and sisters working and creating that capital, our our farm workers creating that capital, our workers in the factories creating that capital, that gross national product that our our mothers uh, and and our women uh, produced and reproduced uh, in their homes uh, that is not included in the gross national product. And there is a study, James, that says that if women were paid for what's called women work, Even if they work outside the home, this is everything from washing dishes to cleaning floors, uh, to cleaning the bathrooms, uh, to counseling their husbands. uh, That (laughs) if they were paid for that, they would be making $125,000 a year. That labor and that reproduction is totally left out uh, and is something that we will turn around when... uh, uh, we have a revolution in this country. There's no other way around it.
0: You know, I got a couple of points for you, then I'm going to move on to the next question. But one of the things that uh, when you mentioned this thing about how, you know, they try to convince black people and pit black people against brown people. Um, I literally had that happen with a guy who was one of the heads of the Nazi party in Riverside. We had kind of confronted this group and he was trying to lecture me at this point about how I should be on his side because they've been harassing. Um, people that they saw as undocumented living in Riverside. And he said, these people have taken your jobs. And I looked at him and said, dude, what job do you think they took I would want? I mean, my people were <laughs> hard not to work in the yeah. fields. Yeah. We yeah. ain't taking care of your babies. We're not yeah. cleaning your house. We're not building your damn house. We're not working in construction. A variety of jobs that we associate with the, uh, with undocumented people taking. But I told him this. I said, you know what? You should be mad of people who actually look like you because they took jobs away from you and took them overseas that actually gave right. you a middle class income. That's right. You know, That's they right. took automotive, right. they took manufacturing jobs away from you and left your ass working over there. At Kmart. Okay. That's right. right.
1: That's right. And uh and and even in terms of white workers, I mean the 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 guy, uh the the representative in Arizona, uh who uh i ha- had supported our pile uh uh supported all this legislation against immigrants later gets into trouble because they don't have the labor to work in the fields and to work in in the essential jobs you know what that guy did uh, uh he introduced a bill to bring in 575,000 temporary workers with no right ro- the bracero program you know we, we nationally organized against it, uh, you know, and uh, uh, we're able to defeat it, uh, but that's what happens when, uh, and, and that's why the uh, growers and some of these, they're, they're, um, uh, they're so fickle on immigration that on the one hand, they love their workers as long as they don't fight for their rights. And as long as they're cheap labor and as long as they don't have to pay benefits, uh, but the minute they begin to organize, then you want them deported or uh, they are uh, criminals and uh, they are destroying our culture. And uh, and that's what Trump used to divide the country. Uh, and that's what they're still using. Uh, and we're going to see that very prevalent in all these cities like Temecula. And uh, we're seeing them show up to city council meeting, trying to turn around the sanctuary bill. We see them uh, right now, brother. Right now, there's a group uh, right here in San Dimas. Uh, They're at Albertsons. And you know who, who the faces are? I, I, I watch this. I mean, I'm, I'm a participant observer researching. Uh, they were the same ones at uh, uh, Dodger Stadium. They're the same ones who, uh, uh, some of them who were protesting in Washington. And you know what they're doing in front? Uh, now, they, they did wear their MAGA hats before. Now they're not wearing them because they're trying to gather petitions uh, to recall the governor, Governor Newsom. Uh, who is behind that whole movement is the alt-right, the news, uh, The these Minutemen. Uh, and, and I see them, and they're right there right now, and why they're not wearing their MAGA hats, uh, because they want to get as many signatures as possible, and they're misinforming and lying to the people again, uh, and, and not wearing masks, and uh, 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 organizing businesses to say, you know, uh, this governor is closing us down and infringing on our rights. Uh, we don't need to wear masks that's infringing on our rights. Uh, and COVID uh, is a, a fraud. Uh, as uh, Trump uh, said, it's a hoax created uh, in China. Uh, and they're trying to take over. I, I mean, and, and, you know, people, not only in the white community, but in our community believe that. And uh, uh, we really need to turn that around. Yeah. You know, um,
0: one other point I want to bring it up and I'll bring it to the next question is you brought up the concept of capitalism. And I've also brought up this to to people that I talk about is that in order for us to have equity for workers in the fields, we need to end producing food for profit. Right. Because that's part of the problem. When you produce food for profit. As opposed to the idea that everyone needs food and everyone has a right to food, you will constantly underpay these laborers, right, to a point that no person who has citizenship, regardless of their race, is going to want to do that job for anything less than 25 to $30 an hour. And they probably still wouldn't last. And if it's for profit, my Big Mac now costs me, I don't know, 10 $15 just for the yeah. Big Mac. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So we, we need to end poor profit production of food. You know?
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. And uh, no no reason why uh, with the uh, tremendous income in this highly developed capitalist country like the U.S., that uh, every person here could have a, a good income. Uh, no reason why we're the most highly developed capitalist country in the world uh, why we can't have a uh, single-payer or universal health
0: care. There is no. no reason. There is a reason. Jeff Bezos yeah. and people yeah. like that. You know, you yeah.
1: know, well, that's she, right. I mean, that's hoarding too much reason. of the wealth,
0: brother, hoarding too that's much right. of the wealth. That's Need to share it with right. their workers. Hey, right. I have that's another right. question. Cause you talk about sure. this concept of community engaged scholarship. Right? right. And I think an article that, or, or uh, article that even asked, is it real? Right. right. So right. Can you talk a little bit about, and I think you're you're making an implication in the article that it's actually more rigorous, right, than regular scholarship. That's
1: right. right? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah talk, uh, and this is a whole,
1: uh, a whole group of us. Uh, this article appeared in the Urban Educational Journal. It's called, uh, is collaborative, engaged scholarship more rigorous than traditional research uh, uh, on advocacy, bias, and social science research? Uh, James, I have to start uh, by sharing uh, just a story. I love Storytelling, you know, uh, 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 when I first started at UCLA in 84, I I joined ASA and uh, uh, I uh, presented at American Sociological Association. Actually, it was a paper on Monterey Park. And and at that time, uh, the mayor uh, of uh, Monterey had come out in the L.A. Times and said, I will not accept. Jose Calderon's research because it's biased. That was an exact quote uh, in the research. And uh, I I would go to the community meetings and then to the school and the people would say, uh, you know, we don't care what he says, uh, you know, what you're doing in terms of uh, we had just exposed uh, that race, racial issues in the uh, Alhambra School District was a big issue. What Principals and teachers and others were saying, "No, it's the hormones of the kids. That's why they <laughs> fight." Uh, and we did a whole survey, and uh, the community said uh, uh, they they didn't care. You know, they they uh, saw saw that research and that we were winning such thing as conflict resolution classes, uh, multicultural classes. Uh, but, but the uh, what I have to share with you is that when I went to ASA and I presented, this prof- this is true. A professor stood up. And he said, "You can't do that." And I, I was saying, "What? Well, what can I do?" He says, uh, "You're totally involved, uh, and uh, and it's biased. Uh, uh, how 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 do you deal with bias? You need to stand afar and be objective, and 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 that uh, is is concrete research." Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience, and I just thank the world that I had someone like Professor John Horton and other professors who, who said it's great to be involved. And this is a time when what we call participatory research, community-based research, uh, was just beginning. And uh, we had a I, – I, I, I can't tell all the stories of what the difficulties were uh, of, of being able to have this kind of research being accepted. In fact, at Pitzer College, where I was at, and I knew I was going to come up you know, for tenure, I actually help in changing uh, the way they defined research to include action research and community-based research uh, uh, in the tenure process. So so let me just say the, a few words on this, uh, uh, that knowledge production, you know, is the, the goal of community-based scholarship. Uh, and it is meant to contribute to the broader movement of social justice. That makes a difference, right? Uh, and, uh, and we know, no research, I don't give a damn if it's statistics, you know, the whole positive, uh, no research is objective. We know. Uh, and one of the things I learned at UCLA and through those years, I, I had a great statistics uh, 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 professor when we learned about the death penalty and all that, how these uh, so-called traditional sociologists use statistics to uh, uh, represent the dominant uh, 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 outlook the dominant representation going all the way back to uh, when they did uh, there would be sociologists who did research that the reason women are located in the stratification structure where they're at is because they have smaller brains or or uh, yeah. Biologists
0: um, used to do the same thing. People want to talk about social science. Biologists used to right. do the same thing. Yeah,
1: That's right. They had uh, books yeah. books written on uh, that uh, it had to do with genes. Mm-hmm. It was our genes uh, that uh, resulted. So no research we know is purely objective and uh, that values and principles and standpoints affect all research. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, Uh, You know, we researchers uh, begin from the underlying assumption that uh, assumptions that shape the questions, the data uh, and and the methods used. So the issue is 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 not whether collaborative community based research is rigorous, but rather this word, uh, how rigor is defined. Uh, It is it is a given that uh, rigorous research should use appropriate and systematic methods stand up to critique by you know others uh, and consider contra- contrary evidence and and even alternative hypotheses but rigor brother is often a code word to me for a set of practices that align themselves with detached research rather than engaged research and there's a a, a stigma placed on that way back brother I, I read a wonderful book. Uh, it was a conversation between Iris Shore and Paulo Freire. Uh, their book, uh, uh, it re- this conversation resulted in a book. It was called "A Pedagogy for Liberation. And Shore and Freire in that book argued that the traditional meaning of rigor needs to be redefined. And they call for, quote, they called it a creative rigor that critiques the authoritarian way of transferring knowledge. And this is their quote, quote, which mechanically structures education and discourages us from the responsibility of recreating ourselves in society. Mm. So instead, you know, Shore and Ferry proposed a creative pedagogy, which reinvents knowledge situated in the themes, the needs and the language of the students and communities. As an, as an act of, quote, illuminating and exposing power relations in the society. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, in, this, in this kind of sense, this kind of thinking, research is more rigorous when it is engaged because it is accountable to input and critique from a diverse set of actors that does not leave out the 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 community uh, uh so the character of a lot of research like for example that i did on the day labor center or the research in Mon always went back to the community and uh, to me that is the highest level of critique you know uh of 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 research where you're involved uh where uh i i really believe this detached research has no accountability often beyond the individual researcher or the colleagues around him or her uh, uh, that are deciding, uh, you know, whether they should be promoted. Let me
0: interject this, too. I feel like detached research means you didn't get close enough. That's right. If you're still detached, you did not get close enough to really understand what's going on. There's right. no way you can get close enough, study poverty, study racism, study sexism, study homophobia, and not feel something.
1: You know? That's so right. That's right. Research. That's you right. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, this relates to the next question, but uh, uh, not only is it close enough, uh, you know, uh, I uh, not too long ago uh, uh, at uh, Pitzer they had uh, this um, – National organization that's going throughout the country protesting institutions that are promoting uh, 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 the support for sexual orientation for LGBTQ communities, and I went and joined the students in protesting that uh, that that group. Uh, when we were walking, this this student asked uh, me, are, "Are you gay?" And I said, uh, uh, "The way I responded, actually." was uh, the way Marcos responded in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, with the Zapatistas in Mexico. Uh, Marcos, they first tried to attack him, that he wasn't indigenous. And the indigenous community said, we don't care. Uh, so then they tried to attack him on the basis that he was gay, uh, that he had worked in a coffee shop in the Bay Area and all this stuff. And that picked up steam in the churches. Well, mm-hmm. finally... The, uh zapatistas ha- held a, a press conference in the mountains because uh, this was growing and uh all of the international media is there and you can go online and see his response I can't go into the whole response but uh uh they started off and they said Marcos is gay and so they're writing their uh, you know Marcos is gay uh Marcos is black Marcos is uh, the the woman Marcos is, uh, you know, uh, showing the solidarity of, of movements and, uh, and what we need and that to really uh, build a movement, uh, we just can't uh, look from afar right. and, uh, and support from afar, but uh, we have to be involved in those movements and we can never fully understand gender oppression. As men. We can never fully understand the oppression of someone who has faced homophobia. And uh, in this society, the attacks against LGBT communities, we can never fully understand, you know, the uh, slavery and what other groups have gone through. But certainly, uh, we can go as far as understanding the historical foundations, like we were saying, of of uh, of slavery and oppression, and why immigrants come here, and then getting involved in such a way with families and being alongside of them that uh, we can come close. That's real unity. That uh, when when those movements see that kind of unity, uh, that is different than you know just singing kumbaya on a weekend, uh, but every day being there alongside of them, and 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 that's what this type of research. Uh, and why we uh, many of us consider it more rigorous than traditional forms, because it must demonstrate its credibility to a broader audience, our communities that brings a more diverse set of partners uh, uh, to question and to understand the standpoints. Uh, there is accountability then to our community, and it mm. demands you know a practice, that is not just, uh, uh, you know, against our communities or, or uh, exploited. So Let, let, me,
0: let me address you know, something right there yeah, that you were go saying. Ahead, go That's ahead, brother. That's really important because I've also made that argument when people say, you know, how can you know that this is rigorous and it's not biased? And I always tell them, look, it's more rigorous because if you care about your community, You're not gonna just print happy thoughts and lies about them because that's not gonna help your community. You print everything that's true to this community the good, the bad, and the ugly because you want the the bad and the ugly to be fixed, all right? Because you care about it. That's right. So it helps your community not at all if you print some rosy picture of the way things are going on. So you're much more honest, I think, when you're involved in loving and caring about your community. Like, I love my kids. And that's why I criticize my kids. Okay. I'll be like, no, dude, yeah. you need to do that better. Cause I don't love my students as much as I love my kids. I criticize them a bit, all right? But not in the <laughs> same way I love my kids. Okay. That's, that's right. So long, right? No, that's a yeah. that's a good example. Yeah, and we love our community, so we will be critical of our community. And more critical that's than right. others who are outside the community. So, I'm so so sorry.
1: And you know, in terms of uh, you know, the the question you had, uh this thing uh this word community engaged scholarship, it can have many meanings. And there are those who use it, uh, uh, researchers uh, who come from the outside. You know, we call it parachuting in. The once they gather the research, they parachute out and they right. use the research uh, for themselves. Uh, this can be a disempowering form of research, but another form uh, is exactly what you said, where the scholar works alongside the community in carrying out research with them around uh, uh, issues, needs, problems that are pertinent to the community. Uh, and in this method, I've found that the community uh, participants like Day laborers, you know, that I've worked with, they have a voice in the research. They, they diagnose and define the problem with you. Uh, uh, that's the highest level. They, uh, in carrying out research on the problem, in analyzing the outcomes of the research, and using the research to present and implement uh, uh, solutions, uh, I, I've written about this. Uh, uh, James, uh, the story of Panchito, who's now 91 years old, one of our day laborers at the at the day labor center. Uh, and we had meetings every Monday, and we would gather round. And uh, there was an article in the paper uh, that said that the day labor center should be shut down because it houses criminals. Uh, uh, people who are taking their jobs and and bring uh, disease, and so he brought the article. Uh, and if you look at this kind of research, and you look at someone like Panchito, he raises a research question. You know what the research question was? He, oh, wow. he raised he raised Why do they hate us? Mm-hmm. So then everyone started having a conversation. The students, and you know, you got the carpenters, and you got the you know the, those who uh, lay the uh, 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 put up tile, who who lays cement. Uh, you know they're all discussing, and one of the workers said, "Yeah, you're right. They're they're smarter than we are." Well, that got a whole response, and they said, "No way. They don't know how to. Uh, you know they don't know how to construct a house. They don't know how to cement." Uh, so round and round they went, and then. So, th- so what they're doing is they're diagnosing the problem, right. uh, and and finally, after all this discussion, one of the workers says, "This was a carpenter." He says, "We need to go out to the community and let them know who we are." You know, we need to go door to door. But the workers came back and says, "I don't have time. I I go to work at five in the morning. I this is the way I survive. I don't I don't have time." So they were stuck. This carpenter then he says, "Well, you know what? there's a Christmas parade next week a Christmas parade what and there's gonna be like thousands there what if what if we go and we're part of the Christmas parade and we let them know who we are and and everybody including myself thought that was I could imagine people throwing things and all that uh, and so they went around and round about um, uh, but this guy was very religious. So it came back again and he says, Well, you know, uh, during this time, uh, Joseph and Mary, uh, they were walking door to door. They were looking for an open door, and nobody would give them one. And that's us. What yeah. if we what if what if we let them know that? And then the students said, Yeah, they th- we'll create a flyer. We'll pass it out and and it'll say, you know, like Joseph and Mary, we are walking in this march uh, for a job and we hope that you will hire us, you know, and this is who we are. So everybody said, great. And then it again, it comes back, you know, and this is the workers say, I'll, I'll bring my wheelbarrow. I'll bring my hammer. You know, I, I, I'll, I, they, they all said, we'll bring our tools. Now, the question became this is the part of research, this kind of research, because they've come up, they've diagnosed the problem, they come up with a solution. Now, the beauty of our science is the implementation. So, we had to go get a see if we could get in the parade in the first place. We did. They put us somewhere between Santa Claus and the angels. Then we had to organize people. So, we had 60 people that showed up that day uh, with their hammers. With a big sign that said Pomona Day Labor and the students with their flyer that said, you know, like Joseph and Mary were walking for an open door to a job. Now comes the best part of this kind of research that is not just sitting in a library and uh, um, writing on notes and then at the end writing a whole paper on somebody else's research. This was what is going to happen. So we show up. The press shows up, they think we're protesting. That was the first thing. Later, an article comes out on this unique group, but we still don't know and we start walking. The day laborers brought, some of them brought their wives, they brought their children, uh, uh, and they're all walking. And and, uh, I always get emotional, James, because as they start walking and nobody knows what's going to happen, on both sides, as they're walking, people began their students are passing out the flyers up ahead people began to stand up and clap oh. all the way down to yeah. the very end and when the workers arrive at the end they're all so excited they're so happy and then we came back on Monday this is the last part of the research is then to evaluate uh, you know what happened uh, and so the, as the workers went around, um they 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 come back to the original research question and and they had an answer and pachito says they don't all hate us they don't all hate us and then what they didn't know is in the next week this is december when it's cold and everything else dozens of people began to come and give jobs to the day labor so if you go to Pomona during this time, you can't do it during COVID, uh, during the holiday season, you'll see this unique group that still marches in the Christmas parade, passing out a flyer. Uh, uh, I, I cite that because this this is an example of, uh, of participatory research. This is an example where it creates change, even if you don't write it up. I mean, I remember when uh, Kathy Cabrera Uh, And uh, another student, Jared Calvert, again in Pomona, uh, the police department, the police association, uh, decided that they wanted to do away with uh, district elections. At-large elections had come through an entire struggle that people did not know about way back in the 90s with MALDEF and the Southwest voter registration in a place called Texas, they figured out what cities can we focus on where we have majority population, like 70% Latino, and yet the city councils have never had a Latino on the city council. Uh, And uh, Pomona was one of those cities at large. So um, through many struggles, it was changed to districts and for the first time you begin to have Latinos represented and Latinas on the city council. One of those was Christina Carrizosa, who became so strong in supporting the checkpoints out there, driver's licenses. I mean, uh, uh, Dolores Huerta of Pomona uh, fighting. So the police could not get rid of her every every time because they wanted the checkpoints. They're making money. So what, uh, uh, Brother James, what they did is then they did, they would run someone against her and she was so strong in her district that they lost. So you know what they did? They decided to create a lie. They came out with a flyer, uh, which had a, a big white hand rising to the top and little brown hands at the bottom. And the flyer said, bring democracy back to Pomona. And they introduced a measure called Major T that was on, on its way to passing because nobody knew what was going on. And it was students and it was Christina. We did the research and found this history of Maldives and Southwest Voter and the struggles that it took to get the, the districts. We went and studied where the police association and these right-wing groups were getting their money to, um, to, to support uh uh major t uh you know what christina did once she found all this information out she went and bought a huge banner and put up that picture of the flyer with a white hand rising to the top and and the the flyer saying bring democracy back and then we had a press conference hundreds showed up and we got those hundreds to go out door to door and the result brother was we defeated. Major T yeah.
0: so really um, what you're talking about is you're talking about research that matters you know so, so.
1: And, and research that results in outcomes uh, you know that, that I haven't even written up uh, it yeah. is in this article uh, it is written up uh, as an example of uh, research then that really serves the community uh, and, and that it, it, where you define then rigor uh, in, in a different way. Yeah. And where, oh. yeah, uh, where where this thing of bias, so-called bias, uh, were involved in the process, and yes, the 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 purpose of the research then, as in Major T, uh, is uh, in in the interests of our community and to expose those forces, those powerful forces that, in fact, have uh, uh, for uh, for years created inequality. Uh, so that the 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 focus is on the sources of inequality, what can be done uh, 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 uh done about it, and uh, on the historical and systemic foundations of inequality, and it challenges students and faculty to find common ground with community institutions, unions, organizations, and neighborhood leaders, to organize further and learn lessons from that organizing. For long-term structural change.
0: You know, when you were talking about um, the concept of actual the people who you are studying being involved in the research, it reminded me of this anthology that recently came out from Jake Ali Muhammad Wilson and Ellen Reese, uh, The Price of Free Shipping, talking about Amazon, because some of the chapters in there were actually written by Amazon workers and, and activists, uh, you know, that aren't academics. And I think it's really important the type, that type of research. I also want to be very conscious of your time, because I have two other questions. One of them is you, your research interest is also in multi-ethnic coalitions. Can you tell us briefly some right. of the things you found on that? And you've touched on it a little bit, but a little bit more.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, i I could tell stories but they take too long so uh, but, but uh, uh, i'm I'm really doing some thinking on this right now and uh 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 with what's happening in the country and so uh my history has been in monterey Park we built a multiracial coalition to defeat Perry Hatch we we built multi we're building multiracial coalitions out here uh and I I really see now it's especially about advancing racial equity in our communities uh, and taking into consideration that uh, because of historical oppression, not all of us are in the same place when it comes to quality and dignified employment, health, education, housing and environment. So uh, uh, multiracial coalitions cannot be built first if if there isn't a contract. I really believe, James, uh, that. We have the objective conditions in a highly developed uh, capitalist country for a new system. But what is missing is the conscious factor, uh, the subjective factor, the objective conditions are there. So it's important to relate to systemic equity, uh, 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 to the structure, a system that uh, has this uh, historical oppression and where now we can fight in our everyday lives for a system to advance social justice with equitable power, resources, strategies and outcome where people regardless of their race, gender, sexual orientation, mental or physical limitations or where they come from have access and opportunity to the tools and resources to achieve the fullest of their potential in life so to advance multiracial or what's being called intersectional coalitions takes the creating of this consciousness that this is not an equal playing field, and that there are specific structural inequities that students and families of color confront every day in our lives. And and we already talked about the disproportionate numbers of black and Latino communities who have died from COVID. And one of the positive aspects is that it's clearly exposed the economic and racial inequities that have have historically existed in our communities. So that it is no coincidence that our Latino and African African American communities have been three times as likely to become infected as their white neighbors. And that Latino and black people have been nearly twice as likely to die from the virus as white people. This is similar to the high rates of police brutality in our communities. Uh, These realities are only the symptoms of years of racial and economic inequities and disparities, inequities that this country has still not fundamentally dealt with. You know, uh, brother, according to the Pew Research Center, the median wealth of white households was 13 times that of black households. White households had 10 times more wealth than Latino households. And we know that these race-blind research uh programs and interventions do nothing to do away with racism's legacy of incarceration, segregated housing patterns, and discrimination and access to resources. So more than ever, we need multiracial, intersectional coalitions that our communities have the same opportunities to reach their potential. And this means prioritizing quality of jobs, workforce training, investment programs, development of leadership in our communities, uh, and we need to pr- keep marching and picketing, but alongside uh, these tools, you know, we need to get our people out to vote and we need to do this research uh, and, 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 and exposing. I, I just have to say I have the highest respect for Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's part of a movement that's growing throughout the country uh, who have taken a stand and are building multiracial unity in our common fight for equality and multiracial solidarity. But they point out the roots of systemic racism and, and white supremacy, movements then that are emerging uh, to do away with the scooter prison uh, prison po- pipeline, unjust detention centers, voter suppression, and acts of genocide that Trump represented that are keeping our, uh, our, our communities divided. And I just uh, want to uh, I'll finish with this, uh, James, it's really important that I've really gotten into that uh, often we can't change everything in the country, but we can start in our own homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just read this book, Community Gardening and Social Activism, that talks about just the significance of planting one plant. But what if you organize a cooperative in your community? We're trying to a do that to the, on
0: our campus, as a matter of fact.
1: That's yeah. right. Or or here, uh, Huerta del Valle, that all the produce from there of 60 immigrant women producing in a cooperative, uh, the the college buys the produce uh, and uses it uh, uh, for the cafeteria. Uh, the, uh, we have a rise of a whole new economy, as I said, cooperative models uh, and proposals such as the new Green Deal proposed by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cartos to shift to 100% renewable energy in 10 years, to create thousands of new jobs, to advance the implementation of publicly owned banks like the North Dakota Bank, where a bank is organized, all the investment comes back to the community for education and health because we own it. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom just signed a bill to create a California public bank. San Francisco's in the process of developing a public bank. The mm. communities here of Claremont, uh, uh, Laverne, and Pomona have been meeting to create a public bank. So this follows with the thinking of a multiracial unity on the one hand, but on the other, building an economic system that includes models of economic development. And brother, we need to do more research on this and implementation uh, where uh, we, we we support and build employee-owned banks. When a factory shuts down, the workers open it up, buy it, or open it up. Uh, uh, a- anchor models that are not just about theory, but are real models. Uh, I urge people to study the Cleveland model that's being constructed in places like St. Paul, Minnesota, Milwaukee, Albuquerque. Uh, this is uh, a rise of what we call worker-owned co- cooperatives. Uh, brother, there's a Si Se Puede Cooperative uh, uh, right now, in, uh, uh, it's uh, uh, owned primarily by Latinas. Uh, uh, it's run by the U- uh, Communication Workers of America, local seven seventy seven in Denver. Uh, uh, it's it's a green taxi company where the leadership and board is made up entirely of immigrants, including immigrant drivers from East Africa and Morocco, and they're united in doing this. Worker co-ops are being implemented in New York City, Newark, Oakland, Rochester, and and Madison. There are more than 6,600 employee stock ownership plans throughout the country with $1.4 trillion in assets and businesses owned by the people they serve. It includes credit unions, agricultural cooperatives, consumer cooperatives that represent right now $500 billion in revenue and enjoy more than $2 million. Uh, uh, and and employ more than 2 million people. Uh, So just to finish, there are four principles here in this direction of changing the system and building a new system and multiracial unity and coalitions for racial equity. One is we got to think on new ways to democratize wealth. Two, place the building of community and what is in the interest of the community in the forefront. Change the gross national product so that it includes not just profits being made, but how it affects our quality of life. Three is decentralizing power in general, so that there is community input. And finally, the most important is having uh, an economy that is planned uh, and, and and not uh, just be uh, without planning in the interests of quality of life with the character of capital and corporations as they have the highest level of planning, but it's to make profits uh, with a culture of greed and selfishness in the forefront. We can create a system where there is planning with a culture of collectivity in the forefront to use the earth's resources, local partnership between schools, cities and businesses and community organizations to solve our community problems. Uh, That's the kind of research that I think we need. That's the kind of coalition building that I think we need and to build real racial equity where um, our our communities, especially those who have been historically oppressed are in the forefront of creating this change uh, and being brought to center stage in this period of time.
0: time. Damn brother, (laughs) like you, I mean, I really wish people could see you because you're so animated about this. I mean, you're so excited, I love it, right? You know, uh, it made me even think about I don't believe we can have racial equity unless we have multiracial coalitions. We just can't have that's them. right. You know that's right. It's impossible. It's literally impossible. We need those multiracial that's right. coalitions. And that's by right. the way, I do want to correct you on uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I like to refer to as future president AOC. Yes. Okay.
1: Right on, brother. Right on.
0: Right on. One last question for you, man, because I know you're going to have to go soon. man. One last question for you. okay? Um, I've been Heather Dalmage once said that that sociologists can't talk in bumper stickers. And I thought (laughs) sociologists are talking a bumper sticker. Right. So if you had a bumper sticker quote, something you could fit on a bumper sticker, it doesn't have to be sociological, doesn't even have to be yours. Right. What would you put on a bumper sticker?
1: Well, it is mine, brother. And if, if you go on Facebook or anywhere, uh, I'm all when something good happens, uh, whatever it is, uh, I always uh, put once in a while, there are rainbows. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a quote uh, from me. Uh, and uh, going back to when I worked in the fields, rainbows were just something big for me. Uh, in fact, if you go on Facebook right now, you'll see uh, Rose and I were just at Joshua tree and rainbows appeared. And so I took pictures and uh, put this thing up on rainbows. But it reflects everything that I've talked about today, the growing possibilities for systemic change with a structure of uniting all that can be united. LGBTQ uh, uh, people with uh, uh, mental or physical uh, you know, uh, issues. People of all colors, Um, and the most importantly is that we have together the the capacity to create spaces and and places that are examples of the uh, multiracial, intersectional, intersectional, and equitable world uh, that we want to live in. And that to build coalitions, we do have to support the particularity of each movement in all its colors. Of history, and really understand it, in order to build unity around the larger problems that all of us are facing. But there's no getting around; we have to understand those specific movements, whether it's the Chicano, the Black, the LGBTQ, the women's movement, uh, and and work at this, uh, take up their issues and fight on a particular basis but at the same time working to build coalitions to unite a, against a system uh, that has historically oppressed us and four examples of a new system with spaces and, pace, uh, spaces and places that we can create that are examples of, of revolutionary change that prioritizes our quality of life over the quantity of profit. And that is my uh, quote, that is my bumper sticker, that once in a while, brother, there are rainbows. And this podcast that you uh, have been developing and the people you've had here, brother, uh, in your own way, uh, whether you know it or not, is a form of activist participatory social change. And to me, I would say to that, brother, that once in a while, with the example you're creating, once in a while there are rainbows.
0: Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. that's high praise coming from you, man. And look, if I, I as I was sitting there listening to you talk, I came up with my sociological bumper sticker, and you know what mine is? I'll have what? Uh, mine is I'll have what Jose Calderon's having. Because whatever you're doing, dude, it gives you so much energy, so much passion that you make me feel like I just need to go out there and do something right now. I mean, as soon as I hang this up, I should be doing something, you know, something. It's okay. wonderful, man, seeing your activism and, you know, your 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 academic, you know, the papers that you put out as well, all bundled into the same thing and so passionate about it. It's just amazing. So thank you. It's high praise coming from okay. you. And I appreciate everything you've done, and I appreciate you taking your time and coming on the program. You know, so. Yeah.
1: Okay, thank you, brother, and and keep doing this, uh, connecting, learning, and teaching, and research, and organizing to social I will, change.
0: I will, brother, and thank I want you. to thank all our okay. listeners for listening to sociologists talking real. Show. Thanks for listening to my dad talk real.